For this week's World Triathlon Podcast, we're delighted to welcome Belgium's Claire Michel. Currently 12th in the Olympic rankings, Claire is a key member of the Belgian Hammers Mixed Relay team, looking to make its Olympic debut in Tokyo, but like everyone, preparations have been thrown into the air by the coronavirus. Not like everyone though, uh, you were recovering from a broken leg after an accident, so Claire, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you. Did that accident mean that the extra year is actually a very precious opportunity? (laughs) Um, yeah, I think I might have been very much in the minority that when when the Olympic Games were officially postponed, it was a bit of a, honestly, a bit of a stress relief for me, because um, the rehab was, um, well, it was just quite, it's slow, it was, I, I anticipated it being lengthy, at least that's what the doctors had told me, um, but I, I still wasn't expecting it to be as long and as hard as it has been, Um so anyways, yeah, the extra year is is actually a bit welcome. You're still kind of in a slight recovery or have you just given yourself more time, I guess, as well? Uh, probably a combination of both. I think um, I've given, you know, we were really looking to kind of, we had, a, we had a hard deadline and we knew it. And I already had adapted it, let's say, you know, my count, the, the accident, what happened was, you know, it was the first day of vacation. So I just finished the last world cup of the season, got home from Japan the next morning out on my city bike. So that was end of October that I fell and broke my patella or yeah. So that was, but that was three months in a full leg brace and then about three months just to get the knee bending back again. Um, which was a bit, which has been surprising to be honest. I, you know, I'd had other, you know, let's say stress fractures and other small injuries, but, um, I wasn't expecting, you know, this much, just relearning how to walk and, um, you know, especially in the beginning, I would be really careful about not, you know, they were, it, the patella itself was in seven different pieces. So I had to be really careful about not moving it, not displacing the pieces. They were also a bit on the limit of, of what, you know, the knee itself could on its own heal. There was like six or seven millimeters between um the different fragments let's say the different bone fragments Mm. um so yeah it was a bit delicate but I was just I was astonished by how much you know I lost like five centimeters of like muscle atrophy around my thigh and um a lot of like motor control skills just yeah like I said the small the small so that's just been a slow process and now I'm back running biking and swimming is more or less normal right um the benefit I would say also is that I had basically already before the Corona crisis, like had basically kind of created my own home gym and had a Vaza trainer so that I could swim a bit before I could actually get in the pool. Um, and so I actually had a lot of equipment at home that I had collected because, you know, I couldn't drive, I couldn't walk. Um, you know, I couldn't usually leave my apartment because we didn't even have an elevator. So it was always like sitting on my bum and going down the stairs. Um, you know, so just like, I, I actually was quite well set up at home, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> the apocalyptic bunker was quite well. Yeah, I was. Tins I was, of food all up in the uh, larder, everything. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I had borrowed stuff from friends also that had different equipment or, you know, and, and um, yeah, it was kind of, I was locked down ready, let's say. And mm. then also even like the mental aspect of, you know, in my head, I'd already prepared to not be ready to race until June or July, um, knowing that, you know, I was hoping I was going to get a race or two in before the Olympics, but, you know, the Olympics were obviously the big goal of the season. Um, 
so yeah, had already kind of made a bit of a shift. And, and then I think that one, you know, like a lot, I think, um, you know, I was listening actually to Tyler Mislechuk's podcast and he was also saying, and it's true, you saw athletes kind of doing either coping it with, with the lockdown in different ways and either going into full training mode or taking a step back. And uh, I also went, I mean, our, and our coach had a very like sustainable approach, let's say. And that's also what we did with this rehab process. And I mean, as far as like the rehab, the, the process goes, is it something that does, does the national setup, sports setup kind of scoop you up and say, right, we've got this for you, like, you know, this, this is all going to help or are you somewhat left to your own devices and then they bring other things into the mix or will your trainer be very on hand the whole time? How does that sort of work itself out? You know, the rehab, I kind of have a team that I'm used to working with, let's say here in Belgium. That's also why it made sense for me to stay because otherwise, you know, I train with the triathlon squad and we're more of, let's say like a nomadic group. Um, so usually based in, I, at least this last year, they were based in, in Montegordo in Portugal for December, January, February, March. And then, you know, for the rest of the season, let's say like April until, you know, normally November, we just kind of go from training camp, race, training camp, race and follow the circuit. But that also means we don't have necessarily like a staff that follows with us. So I stayed in Belgium and, and worked with my, my normal physio, but um, the Olympic committee also has, let's say, um, you know, kind of a team of doctors and you know, core specialists, let's say that you, you have access to. So that was really nice and just kind of pretty quickly established like, okay, this is, um, actually that the hospital right where I was taken happened to be, um, you know, one of the knee specialists, one of the best knee specialists and surgeons in Europe. And he was one who, you know, ultimately said, you know, I would actually avoid surgery. Um, and, you know, really trusted him and, and he followed up, you know, every two weeks with scans. And then, you know, each specialist also kind of had their moment because in the beginning, it's really all about consolidation. And then the next phase, you know, I was going to see my physio every day, actually, uh, or four days a week, four or five days a week to just work on bending, um, mm. you know, and it was just trying to get 30 degrees of flexion, 40 degrees of flexion, you know, and it, it was wow. really a, <laughs> yeah, very, very tedious, very slow process. And, mm. you know, um, a ton of Ubers because <laughs> yeah. still couldn't drive at that point. Um, oh God, and, yeah, they're still dead straight in the plaster as well. So yeah, you know, it's kind of silly. Off. Yeah, because you know, I, I wasn't fitting in any front seats of any car, so you know, I'd have to sit across the entire back row of a car, and so it was all it was you know, and you're there with your crutches and and you're coming down, sitting on your bum to go down the stairs and go up the stairs. It's just, you know, it, it, it looks a bit hodgepodge. Let's just call that what it is. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was kind of, uh, you know, just a lot of also little exercises. And I, I, you know, I remember the first time also, you know, I'm laying there on the table and she's okay. Um, just lift your leg off the table, you know, and, and, and my quad is shaking and I'm trying as hard as I can. It's as if I'm doing, you know, like a hundred kilos. Mm. You're just like, ah! and I, you know, and I was just shocked because she's, she's helping me. She has, you know, my physio has her hand underneath my ankle, but I, I could hardly lift my own leg. And I thought, Oh my God, this is their starting point. But yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay. It's just, you know, you just, you just try to take it day by day. And, um, and then they start to bring out the, uh, 
the cool kit like the anti-gravity or the no zero gravity yeah 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 then yeah then from there then you start after the let's say the physios really we've gotten to a point of flexion where you can start to do exercises then you really move into a lot of rehab and um you know that's been a big part of my program now also is is um you know working with kind of a strength a strength coach that's really helping me even out the difference the imbalances left and right and trying to avoid compensating and Mm you know, even, you know, riding my bike, it's, I'm constantly looking at my power meter to see my left, right balance. And, you know, just the, all those details that it's, it's brain retraining really, um, to reteach yeah. your body how to do all those things. And, um, yeah. Uh, mm. so same thing in the pool, even, you know, kicking flip turns, um, uh, yeah, very, very basic stuff. And then, you know, here on the run, it's, it's the same kind of same thing as trying to reach teach myself to not compensate too much with the right because the right side also wants to take over Mm. yeah i can imagine so and are you are you due a kind of big reunion with the the team soon or how how is it kind of looking from well i mean i think that the situation is still quite fluid um you know paulo our coach has had pretty regular contact with us the training block that he's kind of put here in place is, is more of like a sustainable model. Um, and then as races have been slowly getting back on the calendar, you know, it's kind of at a point where basically most of us have a baseline fitness. Um, and then it's just a question of the six to eight weeks before race, you know, just kind of putting back in some of those race intensities, Mm. but as for really planning, it's difficult with an international squad. You know, we've got people in Japan, in Australia, um, several Europeans. We have Americans in the group. You know, there's still quite a few travel bans and restrictions in place. You know, if it's to go somewhere and then you have to do two weeks of quarantine, you're seeing a lot of places also that are doing, um, you know, kind of having their second wave. Um, so it's still a very, very fluid situation. And it's very much a case by case because I think, you know, some of us, that are Europeans here, we have actually the European championships coming up in Tartu end of August. And that's a possibility for us. Um, at least I hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's not necessarily the case or it might not make sense, uh, you know, maybe for the Americans in the group or. A lot of people who perhaps follow triathlon don't necessarily realize the amount of travel within the travel to races as well that everyone has to to do and the sort of coordination that that all involves and mm-hmm. you know it's it's pretty rare that well let's just say it's it's far more common that you would be away pretty much for a whole season right like that it's not like you you get many opportunities to just kind of pop home and, and catch up it's it, it's often from a race situation mm-hmm. to a, another training camp and and repeat yeah yeah, that's, um, I would say on average, I probably spend 10 to 11 months um, abroad per year. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, somewhere between normally the month of November, three week, three or four weeks in November, um, I'll come home to Belgium and then I'll have like a week here, a week there, maybe between different races where it makes sense. Um, you know, maybe the week after Yokohama, uh, spend a week in Belgium and then you know, go on training camp somewhere in Europe before some of the European races go on. And then maybe after Hamburg or something, another week, uh, just kind of depending on how, how the schedule's set up. But, you know, over the years also, it's just become, the calendar has just become really, really full. Mm. Um, the number of World Cups has 
you know, doubled over the last four or five years. Um, and, and then you, you've got a lot of crisscrossing of the globe also just geographically, um, you know, you, you, you might do two or three um, around the world trips in the season. Um, yeah. And, and that's just not that uncommon. And so, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a lot of travel planning that, that kind of gets involved and, um, well, and life putting yeah. on hold as well, right? I mean, you, you, are you, ma- you're married, is that right? Or no, I'm not no. married, but actually we've, <laughs> um, this is the third time that we've been trying to plan our wedding and we think with Corona, it's going to be postponed again, but <laughs> ah. <laughs> it was planned for this October, um, coming October. But right now in Belgium, there's no like DJs or dancing allowed. And I have family in the US and I don't think that they're going to be able to travel. So we're going to postpone again. Um, mm-hmm. But one of these days, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like, um, you know, Emma Emma and Drew Box, they just got married and they, they were all joking about like their super long engagement. Um, yeah, but I think I'm also coming up on four or five years of it being engaged. <laughs> but it's all right. <laughs> But I mean, for for sure, it t- it takes you need a very um, understanding and patient, uh, you know, family and friends. Let's say mm. for this kind of lifestyle, that's for sure. And when and how did you fall into the triathlon lifestyle? In two thousand twelve, I well two thousand yeah end of two thousand eleven, I moved back to Belgium um, after finishing my studies in the U.S. So I'm Belgian American. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually got my U.S. citizenship uh, in 2011, right. so that's when I got my double nationality. Um, and uh, but then I, yeah, I came back to Brussels. Um, at that point, I was still doing track and field, so I came kind of from a, and my specialty was steeplechase. Tried to qualify for the London Games um, for Belgium at that point. Basically, ended up injured, uh, kind of sick of injuries, and started working full time. Um, and was working for the American Chamber of Commerce uh, here in Brussels and joined a triathlon club. Um, yeah, just for the fun of it and, and wasn't really anticipating to race. Um, met somebody there who is now my fiance, uh, who was really pushing for me to, he's like, oh, just try triathlon. I know you just want to come here and swim and run, but We'll, we'll find you a bike. We'll lend you a bike. Just give it a try. And I had a blast. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, then it just kind of the rest is a bit history. <laughs> so what kind of age were you when, you know, at, at that time? Uh, 24. Right. 24. So yeah, a bit, I guess a bit older compared to, you know, I, I never had the opportunity really to do the the junior, the under 23 um, yeah, races and, and those compete in those categories. Um, but you know, I ran previously for the University of Oregon, which was still, you know, fairly high level. Um, and so it's not like, uh, let's say elite sports was completely foreign to me, but the, you know, the just understanding also, I remember, you know, when somebody from the Federation approached me after doing a local race in Belgium and he said, Oh, I think you have some talent, you have some potential here. Um, are you interested in doing, you know, pursuing this maybe as an elite coming on a national training camp? And, you know, at that point I was, you know, working full time. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to get back into this. Like I kind of put that side of, um, mm. you know, I had kind of put that aside a little bit. And, but I did have this dream of going to the Olympics and, and all of that. And so that just, 
you know, I thought about it for a while and then it kind of went progressively, you know, so I kind of started training a bit more, um, you know, finally invested in buying my first bike, uh, then went to working, you know, sort of like four fifths, if you can call it that, you know, I just kind of worked something out where I could come in an hour later to work and leave an hour earlier, but work on Saturday at home. Um, that way I could get training in before and after work and you know those kind of so then you then you go to part-time and you know <laughs> yeah it's, yeah it's you just an unusual route to uh to an olympic yeah. start line in a way like well, did that make it even more surreal i guess when you got on the start line in rio and to have to have basically had the, had the olympic dream and then kind of moved on yeah i think that there was a little bit of you know that that childhood dream, like finally, you know, sort of like, a, let's say coming, you know, coming to fruition and, you know, massive learning curve over those four, three, four years. Um, it's like, it's just, it is what it is. Like I just barely slipped in there, you know, I mean, I was one of the last to, to qualify um, in the Olympic ranking. And so, you know, just, just getting there in and of itself was, was already for me, like a, a pretty big achievement. And then, you know, in the end, the race itself didn't play out the way I had. It was far, far below, I think, my expectations. And, and um, you know, but at the same time, it gave me a bit of hunger to, you know, okay, I'm going to come back and, and we're going to do this better. And um, I'm not I'm not done with this sport. And at the same time, it also, I think that's what led me to joining this international group was it really had this forced reflection of, okay, what do I want to do with this sport? And, you know, mm-hmm. I've sort of gone to the Olympics, but not at all performed in the way that I um, know that I'm capable of. Um, it would be nice then to, to, you know, all going well, Tokyo, you can attack that as an event. There won't be that same, yeah, there'll be nerves, but there won't be that same like leaping into the unknown or I just would always imagine that the, the hoo-ha, the hoopla around an Olympics would be a bit of a distraction for the first time you do it and then the second time when you've got a little bit more like savvy then maybe it just makes makes you able to concentrate on your performance a bit more yeah I think I think there is something to that because there's you know there's so much spectacle and so many eyes on the games you know it's unlike any other sporting event in the world and on the other that's that's part of the allure on the other hand you know it's it's like chance to shine yeah, yeah, chance to shine, and and I think it's also kind of goes beyond sport uh, in the sense that like, you know, this it's a very unique platform, um, you know, to to kind of you know maybe inspire a younger generation or, um, just kind of make an impact, let's say through sport, and and can be really uplifting. It can be unifying for a country, especially you know Belgium's quite small, um, so. I mean, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there as well. Um, I would say that there's definitely, you know, some things that I've learned about maybe how to manage all of that, that grandeur and that spectacle and being kind of pulled in every direction. Um, and also, you know, even it's like, it's kind of silly stuff, but like, you know, being in the Olympic village is quite fatiguing, to be honest, it's huge. You're always walking, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like just going to the dining hall. You've, you've walked like 4k, you know? <laughs> Well, as soon as you step out of your front door, there's going to be someone running past you or jogging somewhere, right? And kind of getting... Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's also, and that's part of the beauty of it as well. Of course, like, you know, it's, we were, the triathlon was the second to last day the women's race was um, in Rio. And it's, 
you know, you're, it's hard also not to, you want to watch all these other races, you want to see these other sports, and it's hard to find, strike that balance between taking it in and at the same time um, being focused on your race and trying to keep it chill. Yeah, it was <laughs> the penultimate, day, penultimate yeah. day of the games. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I do, yeah, that is something that had occurred to me, how as these events are slowly kind of, you know, closed off one by one, the gold medals are awarded, then the Olympic Village, like the atmosphere must change from but the start, everyone being kind of quite tense and focused, and then bit by bit, people are presumably just sort of... Going to party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the, there's, I mean, and this understandably so, also you can't, you know, the, the people who have, are done competing and want to go celebrate that or are going out, you know, and it's mm. like, you can't, but if they happen to be your roommate, it's a bit, you know, in the village, you're kind of like, yeah. well, <laughs> I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the case for me, but you know, <laughs> I, I know for some other athletes that, that, you know, that that, that could have been potentially a problem, but it's you know, I, th I think also that there's the, the other thing that's come along with this is just like, I've really appreciated this time around just, the pursuit of excellence and that's something that I think I've learned a lot from being in the squad and being around other athletes that have um kind of in the same Olympic um process let's say is just you know that's also really rewarding and um hmm. it, it I think that helps also because you know like you say it's so many so much time spent away from home and this and that but like being around other people who have who have the same level of dedication and commitment as you um, that have the same goals as you that also kind of like understand like we kind of have the same social activities you know like <laughs> we're a lot of like Netflix and chill kind of people and um, so <laughs> yeah yeah I, I just I mean it's that that helps it's like having really great colleagues at work right I mean it makes it makes your job so much easier um, when you've when you've got kind of a good group around you and a good environment around you so you're, the, the Belgian mixed relay team is called the Hammers, right? Yeah, Hammer Down. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's the, what's the story there? Um, well, first of all, we're waiting for all the other teams out there to come up with their equally cool names. <laughs> I think this, this is absolutely a campaign that we can get behind. <laughs> um, yeah, Tommy, Tommy Zafaris told me that he tried to get it going on social and that for some reason people didn't get it. And they were just like, yeah, I'm for Team Australia. We're like, no, we're looking for names. <laughs> but anyways, we're still working on it. Um, no, I mean, our... What our national um, kind of like head coach or team manager, I guess, um, you know, he he was. We were on training camp together with the Olympic Committee, and he was showing us this. Uh, I think it's Norman Sadler, a long distance athlete, and um, he does this post race interview where he's like, "Well, sometimes you just have to hammer down, mm. hammer down," you know. And he he says it multiple times in his post race interview, and I kind of thought that was pretty cool. And then it kind of became the running joke of like. So like we'd we'd go on a training, we'd be like, oh, are you like you want to meet up for a ride? Yeah, okay, let's hammer down, you know. And uh, so we just kind of kept saying that, and it kind of became the joke. And then actually at the European Championships in Glasgow in 2018, there was actually quite a bit of press at that event because they had you know they had joined. Was it called the European Games? Actually, I'm not even. Anyways, uh, they had a a bit more press around that because they had several different sports going at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we happened to be thirds. So we were on the podium and 
uh, Martin Van Riel and I are being interviewed at the same time in, uh, because it's Belgium. There was the French speaking press, which I was speaking to. And then there was the Flemish speaking press, which was just next to us, who Martin was speaking to. And they were like, oh, yeah. actually, and also you should know that in Belgium, they really like team names. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, it's big. Uh, anyways, so Martin and I just kind of looked at each other like, oh, great, what's, you know, team got third. Because it's a little bit long to put in a newspaper title like Belgium mixed team relay third at the European Championships, you know? So um, we were just like, oh, we're the Hammers. And then it just stuck. And the next day, yeah, the next day in the newspaper, it was like uh, Belgian Hammers third at European Champs. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then actually our, our national men, like, manager kind of ran with that. He, <laughs> he made shirts. He made, um, I think we have hats. He made, uh, we now have masks. <laughs> beautiful That's yeah we have, we have belgian hammer masks so what do they um, look like i like uh, not in the shape of a hammer yeah it's kind of <laughs> weird i'll be honest like i, I don't know I, it wasn't <laughs> i didn't pick out the hammer it's not my favorite hammer it kind of looks like a scythe to me i don't know um yeah it, I, i'm not i'll be honest and i'm not a huge fan of the logo itself i think it's a work in progress but right. um but these things can become iconic you know i'm, I'm picturing this sort of 70s uh major league soccer thing when that kicked off and all the teams <laughs> had amazing logos and you know, that's yeah not, sales will go through the roof yeah and and honestly i think it's also really good because it's forced at least in belgium the national federation also to take um i mean the sport in general tends to be more masculine and so it's really forced a bit more of um let's say equality in in funding and in focus and in attention, let's say to men and women, to fields, full teams. And also because in our case, um, you know, there's kind of been the four of us, Martin, Yella, Valerie, and myself, but we're, if one of us is injured or has a problem, we, we were a bit hard pressed in the beginning to have an alternate. Mm. And, you know, in some of these other, like you look at team France and they're like, <laughs> which are which of our top 30 athletes <laughs> are we going to to put today you know and um and they'll and they'll have a they'll have a very good team every time you know um and so so but i mean there's also i think in, in maybe in some smaller countries where maybe they don't have also the depth that forcing that sort of focus on on the balance between a men's and a women's program is is really positive for the sport and i also think it's super dynamic and fun to watch and even fun for us as athletes uh, it's incredibly painful but it's it's really fun to watch um yeah, and fun to do the whole time and... yeah and and you can redo the same race with the same lineup and you're gonna have like the next day you know and you're gonna have a different outcome probably mm. and um so that's like because it's just filled with these like really minute moments that are like just game changers mm. and it's like oh either you made that breakaway or you didn't or you you know you didn't clip your helmet fast enough in transition and it's gone you know or that person like just you know just was able to tag on and then you know the next person was able to close the gap in the swim you know that kind of thing mm. and um I think even among us like uh, the day after a race we'll like <laughs> among the squad we'll just we'll be like out on a training ru- you know on a training ride or a run and we're just like yeah and then that you know and this happened and that happened and we replay that race over and over we're like yeah but if if this team had put this person first instead you know and playing out those dynamics over and over again and that's what's yeah. fun about the mixed team relay 
and uh, presumably you've been in close touch with the the Paolo and the guys like throughout the lockdown. But have you have you got the sense that some people have very much kind of coped with the last few months better than others, or do you think there's a general feeling that people have got on with it okay? Um, yeah, I mean, every, it's different for everybody. Um, and, and that's normal. Also, I think, you know, some people, you know, when I, I had very much mixed emotions also when, when the Olympics were canceled, because I couldn't, I mean, I just, my, you know, my heart broke also for the people who were, you know, maybe planning retirement around this year, people who were maybe wanting to start a family, people who, you know, maybe are also self-financing their way to the games and, and, yeah. You know, an extra year is also like really financially draining for them. So it, I think it's completely normal that people are handling it differently. But what's also been, you know, speaking, with, chatting with each other also helps because, um, y- you know, you just, you just can, you can lean on that a little bit to also um, get some support, especially if you're having like motivational dips and, yeah. um, you know. That you came into the sport from having that professional career in the Chamber of Commerce in Belgium and so on, did that, was that something that made you realise that becoming part of the athlete uh, committee and, and perhaps taking a, an active role in that side of it, did that feel like a very natural thing for you to, to get involved with? I think, you know, what the, the president of triathlon in Belgium, former, I guess, um, had suggested you know, that he said, oh, yeah, you know, it's every four years, you know, they elect a new athletes committee that they, um, you know, they're, they're kind of looking for more candidates and so on and so forth. And so uh, myself and another Belgian triathlete, um, Simone de Kuyper, we were both like, oh, okay, well, we'll you know, we'll give it a shot. Um, I have, a, I, I do tend to be an organizer and I tend to be kind of like, a, you know, sometimes they'll call me like squad mom. Um <laughs> uh and 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 I do have like especially when there's things that I see like because I'm kind of of the philosophy in general that I'm not really you can complain about things if you want but if you don't have a solution to bring to the table then then you just better not say anything at all so I'm more in like a solution oriented person in general um and and I think that that's also like a little bit of what has kind of what draws me to the athletes committee is like you know and I think also the older and you are and the more you kind of develop in in the sport and see how the sport develops um another thing that they call me in the squad is curious Claire and that is because um yeah I I just like you know if I'm like well geez I wonder like why did they double the number of world cups and why are you know like (laughs) and I start to look at these things or like and why accept it as as a thing yeah yeah I just get really curious and I you know I'm one of those people that's like why oh and I wonder why why is this and then I start researching and then I look into it more and I'm like huh and I went and then I talk to other people about it you know and so that's just kind of I guess that's in my personality as it is Hmm. um you know that being said I also had to set myself some limits because I can I can I can I can get very curious and I can get very in-depth into subjects and um I, I'm, but my role right now is still as an athlete first. And so, you know, I knew I didn't want to have like a chair position. Um, Thomas Soth and IUA to do that very well. And, you know, I help more, let's say, as like a secretary role. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I'll 
do a lot of like meeting minutes or research or, you know, whatever, maybe prepare like a position paper, or write things in the background. And, and we just kind of do different projects also, but it's been interesting because it's helped me also understand the sport better um, from all sides of it, you know, from the financial side, the media side, how are race contracts and so on created and, you know, what, what are some of the impediments also to maybe some of the things that athletes have been asking to improve for a while. And to be honest, I mean, it's a developing sport, like triathlon is young. Um, and it's, it's still developing and growing. And so it's kind of interesting to be a part of that. Do you feel that there's a good atmosphere within the athletes that they can be heard and that they can, um, have a voice and that, is there a Um, strong support network there for you guys, do you feel? Well, I mean, we've got, we've got two different subjects here. I mean, the, the first thing is that, yeah, this, this particular like lockdown period, obviously there's no races trying to set up criteria for when we can race again. Um, what kind of creates a fair playing field? These are all questions that we've had to explore. Um, how maybe would we adapt, you know, the Olympic criteria and restarting races again? And, you know, looking at, looking at all those, that's, we've actually had pretty regular contact, I would say, um, you know, there's 12 of us also in the athletes committee and, you know, we were having fairly regular contact with, um, ITU about all those decisions and, you know, it's obviously an unprecedented situation. So you're kind of drawing also from experience, you're looking at what other sports are doing, um, to try to get a sense of, okay, what makes sense here? What's going to be most fair. And again, like really stepping into the shoes of as much as best as you can of other athletes. And that's why also it's been interesting, you know, even for me to like be listening to the other podcasts and to be chatting with my, you know, other teammates and squad mates is, um, just to understand how they've experienced this lockdown period and what would make sense for, um, you know, being able to start up and race again. Um, as for the question, you know, of, of um, safe sport and anti-harassment, um, and, you know, I think the, the shocking kind of news of Choi's death, um, that was just really devastating. Um, and, you know, maybe it's also because of this lockdown period that maybe my, I, you know, I'm not looking to become like, you know, the necessarily the advocate, um, don't have any personal experience. And it's also that, you know, I, I, I don't, I just don't think I'm necessarily the voice for this, but, but at the same time, this lockdown period, um, has granted me also much more time for reflection and, um, again, maybe it's the the age thing that's just like turning my filter off a little bit, but I just, I, I think that there's, that's just not, okay. you know, the, the question of, of abuse in sports is really global. And, um, I think you really have a combination also of you, you've got a high performance, hyper competitive environment on the administrative side of things. And then you've got athletes, um, that tend to be young and ambitious and driven and will kind of do what they're told. And I think that um, if I just think back to myself or most of the you know, other athletes that I know, if you think of the five most influential people in our lives, barring maybe parents, the rest are going to be teachers or coaches, probably. Mm. Um, and that says a lot also about the impact, positive or negative, that like a coach or administrator can have on an athlete's life. But 
um, the, you know, I think sport can be so, so powerful in a good way. Um, and it's just absolutely tragic when it's used and like when it's abused, um, you know, that position of power is really in authority is abused over athletes. And, um, you know, I was, I just thought it was important to say something about it because you never know who you can, who that might reach and who that might help. And I, and I do think that ITU can take a role. And I, you know, as you look through like the, the policy that they put in, that they have in place, um, following the IOC is that there is kind of this encouragement, um, for all national federations, you know, to put these systems and mechanisms in place to report, um, also just to, to be able to recognize what is physical abuse, what is verbal abuse, um, what is like mental psychological abuse, you know, but I think it's important to just like have a bit more of an eye out for it. And, and again, that's where I think some kind of yearly, at least training, um, on how to, how to witness, how to detect it is one thing. And then where at least you need to know where to communicate it. And that needs to be like readily available, you know? Thanks to the ever eloquent and interesting Claire Michelle for coming on the podcast and discussing those important subjects. Um, the triathlon.org website now has a permanent link to the anti-harassment guidelines she mentions and a contact email address. Next week, I'll be talking to Arild Zweiten, Norway's head coach and the man spearheading the country's incredible recent success. Thanks for listening.